Hi, I'm Alexandra, and I am the creator of Alexandra's Adventures. I want to explore different topics, learn new things, and share my discoveries with all of you. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Pensieve Podcast, a segment dedicated to the magical world of Harry Potter. I am back again today with my mom to discuss Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third novel in the series. Hello, everybody. I am excited to be back. So what are we going to cover today, Alex? Well, there are so many interesting topics that we could cover. However, we can't cover them all. So today we will be talking about Bogarts and Fears, Harry's Firebolt, and the Marauders and Snape. And within these points, we will also be bringing up some key points that are different between the movie and the book. And stay tuned for today's Scholarly Second at the end of the podcast. So to start off with Bogarts and Fears. So for those of you who don't know, a Bogart is a magical creature and nobody knows what their true form is. So when you see it, it actually transforms into what you fear. So it can basically become anything. Yes, it's, so. it's a shape-shifting creature. So in Defense Against the Dark Arts, we get our first interaction with one. Um, Professor Lupin brings it into class and does a demonstration. Um, and one of the things he brings up that is very interesting And he asks Harry if he's realized what is so great about them doing this as a whole class is that when the Bogart comes out of the the cupboard, the chest, wherever it is um, in each iteration of when you interact with one, um, it's best to have a group of people because it won't be able to pinpoint one person and it will constantly change. What's important about it constantly changing? Well, <laughs> does it make it easier to? I would I say guess, it makes it? it. Yeah, I would say it makes it easier to beat it because then it's it's only what one person fears. So if there's multiple people, not everyone will necessarily be scared of it, and they'll be able to. And so basically, you're kind of confusing it. Yeah, you are. Um, the way I interpreted it was that it's constantly changing. So it's like it, it can get. I don't want to say get stuck in one shape. <laughs> shift but like yeah it's just confusing the creature itself but um neville is the first student that he calls forward to practice as they go through um first the whole class learns the spell ridiculous which is what you say to in reaction to a bug art and it changes like into something funny but it's not just the spell there has to be something else behind it doesn't it um it helps to laugh laughing okay. is a part of it um he says like you want to laugh at the creature and that's okay. kind of helps with it but you kind of have to picture the creature is different you can it, okay it's in the movie it's definitely portrayed that way like you should imagine it this way and that's how he helps introduce neville into this is okay so he asks Neville for the demonstration, what do you fear the most, essentially, along those lines. Okay. And Neville says, Professor Snape. 
scary man. And it's, it's definitely makes sense after earlier in the chapter, we saw him in potions class and um, Gryffindor and Slytherin had potions together and Neville is not the best at potions. And when Professor Snape came over and criticized him, he actually proceeded to say that end of, at the end of the lesson, we'll feed a couple drops of the potion to your toad and see what happens. And it was, um, they were making a shrinking potion. And he essentially said, like, if it didn't shrink your toad into a tadpole, then you've done it wrong. You've, you've essentially killed your toad. Okay. Like they expected to poison the toad. Okay. Um, and so Neville was freaking out and Hermione wasn't allowed to help him, but she did. And that ended up because his potion was successful in the end. Um, Snape actually took points away from Gryffindor because he did it right. He did it right. Yeah, of course. Um, so going back to the bar, um, so Snape is what he fears. And so Remus brings up, well, like you live with your grandmother, don't you? Like picture her clothes for me. And then when you do the spell, like picture Professor Snape wearing your grandmother's clothes. Yes. Which, <laughs> which can be amusing. Which is definitely amusing considering like in the film, it's really funny to see like the clothing is. Oh, I love the hat. <laughs> yes. And so we see this interaction. So Neville goes first and then they, it's, they don't, it's in the movie, they line up and it's kind of like they just, each one steps forward and gets their turn. And we go through most of the class, but what I think is really interesting is analyzing the fears as well, because some of them seem really like they could be soup, like surface super, level, superficial type fears. And then other ones, if you sit there and think about them more, they're a little more like a deep intrinsic type fear. Something yeah. It's that's, something you can't necessarily like, there's not like a, it, there's not something that can necessarily embody that. So like it's a surrogate. Okay. What is in like a what's pictured? Right. So though there's two different people that like come to mind for a deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. Um. So like for the example for superficial, Ron pictures his biggest fear is spiders. Understandable. And in the book, he's whispering to himself, "Take its legs, like take its legs away." So he's going <laughs> to take the spider's legs away. And in the movie, the way they kind of demonstrate that is there's roller skates on Which, the spider. Yes. Which is amusing. So I feel like if you just look at that, Ron's fear is superficial. It's just spiders, which is understandable. I don't like mm -hmm. spiders. Yeah, but it's not, you know, generally considered a deep-seated, immobilizing fear. Yes, and I feel like w this is where we'll see that. So with Neville and Professor Snape, Neville, he doesn't, we, as we've seen through the first two and into the third novel so far, he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of confidence in no. himself. He's bullied. He, as I just explained with potions, isn't the best at potions. Um, he's forgetful at certain points. And that definitely, he's definitely criticized for that and essentially punished for that later in the novel. Um, but in this moment, Snape embodies his fear of Essentially, like, I don't want to boil it down to not being good enough, but it it's described in many points that, like, even his family 
wasn't sure if he was going to be a wizard or if he was going to be great at magic and actually be accepted at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. And it, no one's ever really believed in him except for, I feel like, his grandmother somewhat has, like, that belief in him and, like, gave him his toad. And we see his friends, like, helping him and believing him. And we see that with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. But I feel like Professor Snape embodies what he fears the most. Failing or, well, which falling is, apart. Or... Like, Snape criticizes him every single time he gets something wrong. So not living up to... And he's not living up to being a good wizard, right. essentially. And... Snape is that one person, that one constant through everything where he's always criticizing. Well, I mean, he is a scary professor, but he's always criticizing and punishing him and not necessarily be, he's not helpful. He's not helping. Um, he doesn't sit there and help work through the potion with Neville. He just is taunts him throughout all of this. He does his best to make him feel bad. Yes. And um, I feel like the other fear we can see this through is Hermione's. So Hermione doesn't get a chance in class to see what her Bogart would be, but it is revealed later in the book that um, she, her experience with the Bogart was Professor McGonagall telling her she failed a test. And we, I believe I talked about this previously in in an episode, but Hermione, she's always trying her best because as a muggle-born, she felt she was already that far behind. And we've seen that throughout the books that people have, like, prejudices between people who grow up in wizarding families and people who grow up with muggles. So she's high and achieving. So, yeah, and she, she, would, she wants to succeed and feel like she belongs. Mm-hmm. And she wants to succeed. And so it's not necessarily like she's scared of failing a test but I feel like that test embodies like I feel like that embodies her fear of not succeeding as a witch and not being good enough at magic and not fitting in and not because if she fails you know if she fails a test or if she fails out then she basically is you know she feels like she's proving their point that as a witch born into a muggle family they're not good enough yeah, and I feel like she could also view part of it as, like, if she doesn't get this, she could lose everything. Yes. Um, but, yeah, and I, I just think this is, it's such a great and interesting chapter to look at. Um, moving on to the second point we're, we're talking about, uh, Harry's firebolt. So, Harry, his Nimbus 2000 gets destroyed in an earlier Quidditch match, and... Um, so he now has no broom. And in the movie, he receives the fireball at the very end of the movie. And there's no note. He doesn't know where it came from. It kind of just like opened up, like the paper wasn't wrapped well. And um, Hermione brings up that this came with it. And it was a big feather. feather and mm-hmm. it was supposed to allude to the fact that it came from Buckbeak, the hippogriff they save at the end of the novel who is also with Sirius. So it is saying like Sirius Black sent Harry this broom. And he's saying right now we're fine. Yes. Yeah, we've made it. So in the movie, it's like a really happy moment. So, but in the book, Harry receives a fireball mid book. 
And it, but again, no note, right? Or I don't believe there was a note. Right. No. And so they were like, who sent it? And they were trying to come up with people. And Hermione's the one sitting here thinking. And they were like, she's like, you're going to turn it in to like Professor McGonagall, right? Like you can't just accept this random broom. Like it's super expensive. And Hermione ends up telling Professor McGonagall against Ron and Harry. Yeah. And yeah. And um, she ends up confiscating it from them and they're mad at Hermione. And she's like, but Professor McGonagall agrees with me. Sirius Black could have sent you this broom. And this was before, at this point, they just know that Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban and everyone believes that he is wanting to kill Harry. Yeah. And we do find out later, um, it was sent by Sirius and they actually, Professor Flitwick and Professor McGonagall have to do all these tests and they're taking it apart and analyzing it to make sure it's not like it's not jinxed, or jinxed, jinxed or has bad spells. And it's not there to hurt him. No. But we do find out from Sirius that it was him who sent it. And he bought it in Harry's name, but told them to get the money from his vault. And, like, from the Black family vault. And all I could sit there and think about was, like, and no one thought that was suspicious? That yeah. Harry was receiving a broom with money from the Black's vault? <laughs> well, you know, some people just don't think in that manner, so... So I just, I thought that was really interesting, but the fireball definitely plays a different role between book and movie. Oh, yes, because, you know, the movie ends with him being so excited about having re received it because it's the newest, fastest broom, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a gift from, we find out, Sirius, who is Harry's godfather. Um, but in the book, he received it, as you said, from Sirius, but he didn't hadn't met Sirius yet, right? No, but he also didn't, it wasn't confirmed yet that right. it was from Sirius until he met Sirius. So he doesn't have the same emotional Excession. connection to the broom in the book yeah, the as beginning. he does in the, in the movie. Yes, because at that point, he's just excited because he's got a new broom. It's super fast. He'll actually be able to like do better at Quidditch games because he doesn't have to use one of the ones they have on the side, which are just school brooms. School brooms. Yeah. And so it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a definite change. Yeah. It's interesting how much of a difference an inanimate object can have between a movie and a book. I mean, a lot of times they'll cut out a character or add a character <laughs> yeah. or change a character. And this is just, you know, it's an, it's a broom. Yeah, and I mean, so I don't know if it has the same effect, but inanimate objects being, like, things that have an impact between, like, book and movie is, as I said earlier, Neville gets punished for being forgetful, is after um, the fat lady portrait that mm -hmm. is the entrance to the Gryffindor common room gets destroyed and it comes out that it was Sirius Black, they have to find a replacement painting and it ends up being this knight that we kind of met before. And he's it's really interesting. Um, he definitely wants to, like, play wow. around and battle with the students. And they just want to get in the common room. And because Neville is so forgetful and the painting switches the password all the time, he asked for the full weeks. And he had a list of them. And they find out that, like, they come back and Harry's 
like the their their dormitory, the boys, was destroyed, and they find out that Sirius Black had gotten into the common room, and they're like, "Well, why'd you let him in?" And he's like, "Well, he had all the he had the password. He had the whole weeks, in fact." Oh. And that's when they realize that. Like, Neville lost the password list, so Sirius got it, and they actually made it that Neville wasn't allowed, if I remember correctly, Neville wasn't allowed to have the password anymore, and he had to wait for a student. And that is not even covered at all in the movie. No. So, yeah, that's a fairly important part of the book that, you know, just, we don't learn about. Yeah, and so, leading more into Sirius and, like, being into in the castle we'll move on to our next point which is the marauders and snape and we learn a lot about them later in our interaction when we all get to the shrieking shack can i ask a question yes please explain to me what are the marauders so in the book well in the movie as well so in the storyline um harry cannot go to hogsmeade because he doesn't have permission because he doesn't have his permission form and so he was going to use his invisibility cloak, but the twins, Fred and George Weasley, decide that Harry's needs are far better than oh. theirs. So they pass on this map that they got out of Filch's office in their first year. And it, it, once they figured out how to, op- how to read it, they found out it was called the Marauder's Map. And it says the Marauder's map is presented by Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Okay. And so those four are the Marauders. And it's not revealed until later, really, but the Marauders were essentially Harry's dad and his friends. So Prongs is James. James. Padfoot is Sirius. Remus Lupin is Mooney and Peter Pettigrew, our bad guy, <laughs> is Wormtail. Which is kind of appropriate because who wants to have a name of Wormtail? Yeah, and we we can actually get into that is this is great like symbolism is it's based on we learned that they were also given these nicknames because they became anime guy. So Mooney is just because Remus is a werewolf. And when James, Sirius, and Peter found out, they decided to become anime guy to help their friend mm-hmm. on the full moons. And the dog, which is Padfoot Sirius, it, so James turns into a stag. Um, Sirius turns into a large black dog. And Peter turns into a rat. I, I, yeah. Why would why? you choose a rat? Why? But... Um, it's great symbolism here because we do find out throughout the whole story, it's presented, everyone believes that Sirius worked for the Dark Lord, worked for Voldemort, and sold out James and Lily Potter and their hidden location. He was their secret keeper. But, and that's why they're like, well, he killed poor Peter. But it turns out Sirius knew that they would come after him because of his family and like his family were close to Voldemort and, and stuff like that in the dark side, the dark side. <laughs> um, but we, we get more that he was like, you should make Peter your secret keeper. We learned that he told James and Lily to do that because 
then, like, why would they go after him? Right. He's just this shy little kid. Like, why would they go after, the like, the weakest one kind of thing? And so only... I don't recall if Dumbledore knew, but only really, like, Sirius knew then. Um, I don't even think they told Remus that they were doing this. Okay. And so... This small change was made, and I think it's a great symbolism here, is the dog is a great symbol of loyalty. Yes. Man's best friend. Man's best friend. The rat? Yeah, well... Is, yeah, it's usually a symbol of... Sneakiness. Um, yeah, like... You know, being sly. You know, they can make wonderful pets, but, you know, you negatively use the term to rat somebody out. Yeah, like you're, exactly, like, not necessarily the most trustworthy here. So I think it's a great, like, thing, symbolism used in the book is that, like, hey, why would the person who turns into man's best friend, the dog, the loyal one, be the one who ended up not being the loyal one? Right. In the end. Um, But, yes, so those four make up the Marauders, and... Snape went to school with all of them. Yes, because they were just best of friends. <laughs> and none of them really got along. Um, but we do learn why Snape hates Sirius. Okay. And Remus and James. Like, we find out a little more. Like, there's plenty. Yeah. But we also find out how he knows that Remus is a werewolf. And that is because one of the times I... He saw Remus like going in the, the Whomping Willow and, and the um, there's a hole at the base. And so Sirius tells him like, hey, if you just take a stick and poke this knot, you can get in there. And James happens to like overhear that. And so he he's able to protect Snape from Being pretty much or- death because it was one of the full nights of the full moon when Remus was going to change into a werewolf and um but Snape really never knew that James was not he was against it Mm -hmm. and just thought that he was backing out against a joke that they had all decided to play on him and so he never really understood that he was actually trying to help him um because I mean in reality James is a really decent person like there he does things that aren't the best we learn in flashbacks and things but at that moment, he was trying to do what was right. Um, but we also see see some back and forth that's really amusing. And I think is there are some points that could just slip up, slip by. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they definitely point out their relationships is uh, in their interactions together. In the Shrieking Shack, right? In the Shrieking Shack. Um, this is now where... Uh, Ron, Ron, Hermione, Harry, Sirius, Remus, and Severus Snape are all in the Shrieking Shack. Along with the rat. Along with the rat. Um, along with Ron's rat, Scabbers. Yes. And Ron has been bitten by Sirius, who was in his animagus form, um, so his leg is also injured. Yes. And so Sirius is, like, taunting Snape at this point. And tells him, like, why don't you go run away, like, run along and play with your chemistry set. Which is kind of an odd statement. Yes, so chemistry isn't really something you learn in the wizarding world. You learn potions. It's it's a muggle thing. And I just think that's a great, a great little dig. Dig that Sirius does is, like, pointing out 
to Snape, like, sir, like, Snape has this, like, superiority complex that witches and, and are better than muggles. Yeah, except for the fact that Snape is, I believe, muggle-born, or at least half-blood. <laughs> like, one of his parents was a wizard and one okay. of them was a muggle. Because he does, he does bond with Lily in school because they're the same. Right. But then... He does make, which is why I'm thinking he's half-blood, is because he does make a rude comment to her. And he does also have, like, he sides with, like, Voldemort at points. Right. And so, and he became, like, we find out later, other details about him and his actual interactions with Death Eaters. But, yeah, he's got, it's an interesting... He's a complex character. Yes, he is. So, but so while they're at the Shrieking Shack, there's a lot of accusations flying, and Harry still doesn't really know what's going on with Sirius, right? No, he still thinks that Sirius is there to kill him because okay. Sirius is as as great and lovely as he is. He is such a dramatic person, and <laughs> I love it. But he he goes through and he's like, "Only one will die tonight," and so of course Harry thinks. It's him. Everyone thinks it's Harry. Yes. And Ron is like done. He he even though he is bleeding and injured, he stands up and he is standing up to a convicted murderer that they think is there to kill their best friend and he just tells him, "If you want to kill Harry, you have to kill all three of us." Like there's no way you're just going to kill Harry. We're, and we're get not going we're it. not going to roll over. Yeah. And in the book, it actually quotes um, something flickered in Black's shadowed eyes after Ron said that. And he then qu quietly tells Ron that he needs to lie down so he doesn't injure his leg more. Right. And then Ron's just like, did you not hear me? Like, you have to kill all three of us if you want to kill Harry. And I just think this is a great little moment because Sirius knows the he's, truth. He's not going to kill Harry. He doesn't want to kill Harry. Yeah, and... So, and he knows he's Harry's godfather, which hasn't been revealed. Well, no, it has been revealed yet. Sorry, it has, it has been, been revealed, revealed, but it hasn't really been discussed between Sirius and Harry right. yet. And it's a great moment because it just highlights, I think that flickering highlights that, like, Sirius is recognizing that Harry has actually found friends and a group of friends that are just as loyal and great as he had with James and Remus. Um... And I just really love that. Yeah. Which is awesome. And so, you know, I guess it does give Sirius a chance to think about Harry and what can happen after the Shrieking Shack. Yeah. And when he tells Harry, like, and asks him if he'd like to live with him after everything gets settled, it just makes my heart so happy. Like, I just wish they could have... If You wish it could have happened. I wish it could have happened. And it makes me angry because if you think about it, um, Hagrid, when Hagrid finds out that um, Sirius was like, is supposedly after Harry, he's like, I saw him that night when I picked up Harry from Godric's Hollow. Like, I almost gave him to H Sirius, and Sirius was like, I'm his godfather, like, give me Harry. But it's like, at this point, everybody still thinks that Sirius, Sirius did it. it. Like, Sirius hasn't done anything right. yet. No one, no one knows what's happened so far and it's not to like from my 
like understanding it's not until the next day that he goes after peter because he knew peter was the one that knew where james and lily were okay so it's like harry could have gone and lived with Sirius. yes so just it just breaks wish, your heart it breaks my heart i wish he could have gotten time with him because he would have gotten to he would have grown up with both remus and Sirius more than likely he would have grown up with a loving family he would have grown up with a loving family and i just wished he could have had that yes um, and we sadly end with, on a really disappointing note, because we also lose, not only do we have to let go of Sirius at the end, because he has to, because of everything that goes on, he actually, they break, Harry and Hermione break Sirius back out of mini prison in the Charms Tower, but, and let him like go on the run, but they also lose Professor Lupin in the end. In the movie, he says he resigned because someone let it slip. But in the book, we actually learn more that um, Professor Snape let it slip in the Slytherin common room. Suppo- let it slip. Supposedly. Um, and told the Slytherin house that Remus was a werewolf, which then led, makes everything. It makes it more difficult. Mm, yes. And Remus doesn't want to put that on Dumbledore. And so he resigns because Dumbledore was nice enough to give him a job. Yeah. And it's it makes me sad because Remus. He would have been a wonderful... He was the best... Step-in father-type figure for Harry. He was. and yeah. I mean, he would have been too. And he was the best Defense Against the Dark Arts professor that they've had so far. Yes. And it's just, why couldn't he stay? Yeah. Um, but yet again, another topic yeah. that <laughs> we can't that get into at the moment. But exactly. It's, it is a disappointing way to end... But that is all we have for today. So thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me. And stay tuned for the Scholarly Second coming up next. And now for our Scholarly Second, where we talk about scholarly works related to Harry Potter. Today's Scholarly Second is brought to us by Joshua Cole, whose article is titled Lupin's First Lesson, An Example of Excellent Teaching. The author brings our attention to an aspect of Harry Potter that can easily be overlooked, and that is how the books are more than just stories about magic. These stories can be applied to our everyday lives. In Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, we are presented with Professor Lupin's first Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson on how to defeat a Bogart by laughing at it. The author says that this is a model of sound pedagogy, Lupin is aware of the students' learning and experience with previous teachers. He connects theory to application, engages students with an activity, and tries to understand the character of each student. Cole suggests that reflecting on this model offered by Lupin can help teachers, including college professors. Prior to Lupin's class, we are presented with an example of poor pedagogy um, during one of Snape's potion lesson, potions lessons. After being introduced to these two classes, we can see from the way Lupin handles the class that it is clear that he either has strategies prepared ahead of time or he improvises well on the fly when it comes to helping his students. It is worth noting though that Lupin's wisdom and guessing are not entirely correct all the time. 
Harry's greatest fear was not Voldemort, but in fact, Dementors. And as a general lesson about teachers, this exemplifies that no teacher is perfect. Teachers merely must strive to do their best. Just as Lupin takes notice of the character, which includes both strengths and weaknesses of his students, Snape notices the strengths and weaknesses as well. However, he uses this knowledge against them rather than for them. Cole's paper allows us to look at a good story and reflect and have moments of self-awareness about when moments in our lives and possibly when teaching, we are either more like Professor Lupin or more like Professor Snape. Thanks again for exploring with me today. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about today's episode, or ideas for what you want to hear in future episodes, you can DM me on Instagram at alexandra's underscore amazing underscore adventures, or you can leave a voice message on our Anchor profile.